Welcome to another episode of the Dermatilla Diaries. Today I have with me a very special guest, California-based licensed psychotherapist, Karen Pickett. Karen is an expert in the treatment of anxiety disorders and body-focused repetitive behaviors. Previously, Karen was the clinical director of the OCD Center of Los Angeles, a featuring psychotherapist on A&E's acclaimed TV series Obsessed, as well as appearing on CBS as The Doctors, Dateline NBC, and the Discovery Health Channel, to name a few. Thank you so much for joining me today, Karen. It's my pleasure. Glad to be here, Kim. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you today. Um, First of all, I'd love to know more about what made you decide to become a licensed psychotherapist and the different areas you work on with patients. Yeah, well, thank you for asking. I actually um, am someone who has suffered from uh, severe anxiety and depression, as well as I consider myself a recovered skin picker. Um, Yeah. So, yeah. So um, I, you know, once I received some help for what I was going through, I decided to change careers and I really loved the idea of giving back to others what I had received in my healing journey. And I learned so much about myself. And while I think it isn't a requirement that people have an experience of what it is that they're treating. I think that often happens. And I feel like for me, at least as a therapist, that while my experience isn't exactly like someone else's, I I do know what a panic attack feels like. I do know what a, a, a desire to spend three hours at night in the mirror picking my face is like, you know, and I think that that just gives me an understanding and an empathy that may or may not be lacking, you know, if if you don't have the experience, it's hard to know what it's like, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I I imagine that really helps um, your patients feel so much more understood and seen and probably reduces or eliminates that guilt and shame because they know that you've once been there and you're at, you know, the other side of it. And so that gives them a sense of hope that they can to be at that point uh, when, when working with you. I hope so. And, and I, and I think so, you know, I, I always hold it within myself and, and that, that there is hope for anybody that I, that I'm working with, as long as they're willing to do their part of it, you know, I, I always have hope. Absolutely. And, and do you, um, so the training that you give to others, is that like, is that the exact kind of training that you once received or very similar? Like, I, I suppose it's quite different approaches for different people. Would, would that be the case? It is in my, my journey, my healing journey was, um, uh, took a number of years and, and, and really encompassed a variety of different things. And I continue to learn all the time, new things. So I really consider, um, my the work with my clients, whether it's anxiety, OCD, BFRBs, that I try to stay up on the latest and the greatest in terms of treatment. So I'm incorporating both the things that I've learned in the past and the things that I've learned along the way and the things that I stay up to date on in terms of treatment. So it's not exactly, there wasn't a lot of treatment when I was going through the worst part of, 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 of my own journey, but um but, um, you know, so much has been learned since then. So I just try to apply that to others. 
Oh, that, that really is amazing. Um, and it makes me feel like even happier to, to speak to you today because I had no idea that that was the beginning of your journey. And, and that's kind of what's pushed you to, to do what you do and helping other people. Um, and, and with you saying that you work closely with those dealing with bodily focused repetitive behaviors, can you explain like what the, the term means and, and how you can help with that? Right. So body-focused repetitive behaviors are a a group of behaviors. um, I mean, really, the name says it all, body-focused repetitive behaviors. So it's body-focused, they're repetitive behaviors, and um, they include trichotillomania, which is hair pulling, excoriation disorder, which is skin picking, nail biting. There's, there's some, you know, there's terms for these, but I, I have, I stumble over the terms. So I just use the regular language, nail biting, cheek biting, even hair twirling, hair breaking, um, you know, those kinds of behaviors. And one in 20 people in the world are affected by BFRBs. Um, So, and we also see it in the animal community. So that's one of the reasons why I like to let people know, I know shame, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but I know, you know, shame is a big part of a BFRB for many people, but I think it's important that people understand this isn't something you chose. This is something you were genetically predisposed to do. And the reward system of doing the behavior is a physiological reward system. So it's not, it's not a choice that you do this, you know, it's not a choice that you start to do this, but body focus means it's focused on your body and the repetitiveness of it is that Oftentimes, as you may know, once a person starts engaging in the behaviors, it can be very hard to stop either in the moment or long term. Mm. And you, you say that, um, obviously, you say that one in 20 people have um, a BFRB. So it is pretty common. Um, do you think it, how common is it that people like realize that, that what they're doing is is something like that rather than just like a little habit? do you find like a lot of people kind of come to you and maybe with something else and then they realize that the behavior that they do is actually like closely connected or because there isn't I don't know like in recent years I'm seeing more on BFRBs but in the past I didn't hear anything about it I just thought it was a habit for me right right and that's such a great question Kim and and I think um, my experience has been both of those things one is that someone might come to me with anxiety or OCD. And it turns out in the course of that, that we find out, oh, well, they have trichotillomania or they do skin picking in addition to whatever else brought them in to see me in the first place. And then there's the other group of people that, you know, happen to find something online, which again, you know, is probably more common in the last 10 years and people like you are doing such wonderful you know, providing such wonderful information. So more people identify, but I mean, I would say at least half of the time people see something online and come into my office and just start crying because they're like, I never knew that this was an actual disorder. I just thought it was this terrible thing I did to myself and I never knew why I couldn't stop. And I, it's just made me feel so bad about myself and my life, you know? So while the word is getting out there and certainly, you know, social media and, and, and podcasts and things like, 
people like you and that your things that you're doing is definitely helping. There are still so many people in this world, I know for sure, that are feeling really bad about themselves and what they're doing, their BFRB, not having any idea that it's an actual disorder. So it's always such a, it touches my heart when someone finds some information online and then is able to access some treatment in any form, you know, but when they come to me and just are like, I had no idea this was an actual disorder. I just thought I was this terrible person that did this thing to myself and I feel so bad about it, you know, and I just, my heart goes out to them, but I'm so glad they found me. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. Um, I mean, I remember when I found out and it was, um, must've been about eight, eight years ago or something like that and um, from and and again like stumbling on I was looking through forums and like deep in, into looking at websites trying to figure out what was going on because I was just in so much despair um and obviously that that shame the immediate shame after a, a long skin picking episode when I was just like why can't I stop and the amount of times I tell myself like tomorrow like that's it like tonight is the last time I'm doing it tomorrow's a new day fresh start I'm gonna count all these things like that I'd try and put in place to stop what I was doing which would only then make me do it even more um and having you know realizing that what I have is actually disorder and then getting a a diagnosis for it it was like it's scary but also really relieving because it's like oh okay like it's actually something far bigger and that's why I can't just stop and it like kind of makes things a bit more realistic in your mind you're like okay just stopping isn't actually gonna work so let's just park that idea and let's look at other treatment and resources um you know people such as yourself um trained professionals that can help um, and that just opens a completely new door into like self-discovery and self-acceptance right exactly I think that's well said and I think what you were talking about so many people when they don't realize including what you were talking about you know with your own experience don't realize that it's an actual disorder and say okay tomorrow I'm going to stop and then every time the person fails at that, fails to keep their goal, can't succeed. It it reinforces there is no hope for this. I can't control this. What's wrong with me? You know, and it sets up a sense of there really is no hope for this. And I think that's why people start crying when they find out it is an actual disorder and there is treatment. They're so relieved because they've been through like yourself. It's like every day, all right, tomorrow I'm going to, I'm not going to do this, you know, and then you do it and you mm, just feel so bad about yourself, you know, and then you find out why you're doing it. And like you said, it can be scary, but it's also very freeing. I think to know, Oh, okay. This is why. I do. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm, it, <laughs> right. Yeah starts to connect the dots you're like right yeah and then, and then I think it opens up like an acceptance and allowance within yourself to be open um for help by other people by other means and, and like allowing that um the healing to be shared and understanding that like it's it's doesn't have to be like a burden on your own shoulders not doesn't have to be something that you have to keep to yourself um you you can talk about it you can 
see what's out there to help you and um and that is such a a rewarding journey even if it's a case of okay I tried that that didn't quite work um but I suspect um I suspect using myself as an example here yeah clients patients of yours may have had the same kind of initial thought process of right I need to like look at what's going to heal it like what's going to cure this I need like quick results give me something fast, but then over time realizing actually this is like a marathon, not a sprint. It's, you know, it's going to take however long it takes and like managing it and getting it to a place where I feel, you know, like it's just maintenance. And and have you found that with like clients that you work with where it's a bit of a shift of mindset um, over time? Exactly. Yeah. Shift of mindset over time. It's realizing, I think as humans, it's a very natural thing to want a quick fix, especially Mm -hmm. if you've been, if a person's been suffering for a long time, you know, and find this, oh, wait, there's, there's a, there's recovery as possible. I want it now. Like let's, let's, let's get it done now, (laughs) you know? And, and I get that, like, that's a totally natural impulse as as the human to, to, to want to have it. But the shift in mindset that you were talking about, I so agree with that, you know, you have to look at the long, the long game and see that it is a series to me, a series of changes mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, in all ways that take time to integrate, you know, because mm-hmm. as humans, we don't just flip a switch and everything changes. We're much more complex than that. And these disorders are much more complex than I do this. And, you know, and that's the result. It's ve- they're very complex disorders, BFRBs. And I think the other thing is that, um, you know, people sometimes want, you know, just want to know how do I, how do I fix this? How do I change this? And sometimes that can be a result of anxiety of wanting the bad feelings to go away, the shame to go away, um, not to continue to experience those uncomfortable feelings. And one of the most important things is sort of a mindfulness acceptance approach to BFRB treatment is you have to get comfortable with the uncomfortable. That is a part of life and that is a part of healing and that is a part of recovery. And I think it's uncomfortable to think this is going to take time and I have to be gentle and kind with myself as I go through this process because it's not going to change overnight. And, you know, as a recovered skin picker, which I only did on my face, you know, every now and then I'll like do something on my face, like, you know, I still consider myself recovered because I stop. I don't usually do very much damage. Like it's very different for me than when I was spending three hours a night in the mirror, picking up my face with all kinds of, you know, stuff going on. So, you know, I think to come from that place and then to realize, oh, you know, it never really a hundred percent goes away because all human beings pick their skin and recovery looks a little bit different for every single person. Um, And to me, recovery looks like whatever the person wants it to look like. Right. So some people are okay with, Hey, you know, I pick this or I pick that. And it's like, great. If you're comfortable with that, that's fine. But if you want to go to, I'll never pick again. I don't think that's realistic. I think it's realistic to say, 
eh, I might pick a little bit from time to time, but I, I won't spend as much time doing it and I won't do as much damage. And so to loop that back into what we started talking about the, just now is that it takes time and to set yourself up for recovery means a change of a lot of different mindsets and a lot of different uh, behaviors and thoughts and responses to thoughts and feelings. So it, it is a process. Yeah. Um, and I think also like, I mean, again, just using myself as an example here, like pressure played a huge part in, in things as well. So like when saying, um, like, you know, I, I need to like saying what you said before about like aiming to never pick again, well, there's a big pressure placed on that because that's a really charged sentence to say, I, I'm never going to do it again. It's like probably in the back of my brain, it would be like, that temptation would stop to build like, Oh, well, like, whereas it's like, well, if I might do it time to time, then the pressure's less on you. It's just like, if that happens, that's fine. You know, just kind of get back onto the, the, the positive things that you're learning and working on so that, so that those little periods just stay little periods ever so often. And you know, how, how to kind of get yourself back onto, um, the, the straight and narrow, I suppose, and in and, and whatever your healing journey has decided to be. Um saying you know, like as people are starting to become aware of body focused repetitive behaviors, um, whether it's like online like speaking, finding content about it, or um, you know, speaking to licensed professionals such as yourself, um, how would you say things are um in like the medical field? Um, or like society in general, do you think like the awareness has, have you seen like a change over time with the understanding of it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I would say it's, it's primarily been in the last five to 10 years, but you know, it's, it's just like change. It's like change or recovery from a BFRB. It's the same sort of process. Like there's these little things that are happening and you kind of go along and then all of a sudden, whoop, there's like an exponential growth, you know, or an exponential change. And I think that's partly how re- I, I see that a lot in recovering. You're putting in the work, you're doing the steps, you're, you're, you know, using your fidget toys or whatever, you're surfing the urges, you know, whatever. And it feels like, oh, I'm just never getting anywhere. But all of those things are adding up. And then all of a sudden, whoop, there's this increase that seems like it happened overnight, but it didn't. It was the result of all those steps you put in to get there. And I think the same thing has happened largely, again, because of social media and um, and, and podcasts and things like the things that you do, but also the media and, and celebrities coming out and destigmatizing and more stories being written about it. And so it's like the information has in the same way, it's been percolating, percolating, percolating. And now all of a sudden I see this exponential growth, you know, in information. And one of the things, Kim, that I've really noticed over the last couple of years, I think for many people, it used to be, um, Skin pickers, especially, I'm going to use an example of skin pickers, um, is going to the dermatologist or going to a doctor. They didn't want to because the doctors and the dermatologists didn't understand and they would just shame them and say, well, just stop. You know, the same things that we know don't work, but that pe- people who were untrained um, didn't know the difference. And I have definitely seen in the last 
let's say five years, especially the younger um, uh, people in the medical practice who have been more recently been through medical school, that they're actually teaching about excoriation disorder and trichotillomania. And they're, you know, I've, I know people who've been to dermatologists and facialists and, you know, and I live in Los Angeles, so, you know, it's a, it's a really, you know, it's a sort of on the forefront of, you know, a lot Mm -hmm. of, knowledge and, and, and people. But when I was living in Ohio for a few years, that also happened. I just recently moved back to LA from Ohio. So that's a state here, United States. And, um, and even there, the younger dermatologists there, some of them knew about skin picking and were able to kindly and compassionately and knowledgeably treat the person's skin condition. And then the person would be in therapy with me to continue to work on that piece. But just, just in terms of like you asked about the medical community and that's what popped into my mind. It's so gratifying to me to know that this information is actually starting to be taught in medical school. Yes, me too. Like just hearing that, it just, I feel it's like warm fuzziness inside. Cause like, um, I don't know, oh, when was it? Maybe like a decade ago now. And I remember when I first went to the doctors and they just told me to stop. They signed me off with, you know, antidepressants and they just saw it as like, you're depressed, like here you go. And it's like, no, like, yes, I'm feeling low moods, but a lot of the moods are contributed to what I've done. But I know that I felt, you know, that these weren't really going to get to the root of the problem. And I just felt at the time, like, here's a quick fix, go. I don't understand it, so I can't tell you. So there you go. And that's very, you know, demoralizing. And it's, it's you feel ashamed going in there, putting your hope into someone that you've been told, like, knows all the answers, to, can answer your questions and, and make you feel good. And um, and when that doesn't happen, that that just totally pulls you back in you don't really want to be vulnerable and let your guard down and, and try again so that's so refreshing and, and makes me so happy to hear that there's like a newer generation of medical professionals that are like you know learning it as part of their curriculum or um or even um training in it as part of something else that they're doing so that there's like kind of a, a dual um, qualification or, or something so that so that there's just more options um, and obviously with yourself in, in Los Angeles as you say like so many of like breakthrough treatments begin in places like like where you are um, but then there is that snowball effect like everywhere else where everybody everywhere else around the world starts to um, catch up and and hopefully we can all get to a point where there's, you know, physical places that we can go to and, and people we can see face to face. And yeah, a, a variety of, of treatments that really excites me. I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> yes. So that was, I'm glad. And, and, and yeah, I think you expressed, you know, the, from your own experience, like I, that's a very common from what I've heard people tell me that same sort of experience of, thinking this is an authority figure. This is someone who's knowledgeable, who knows so much. And then you just get the shame and the the shutdown. And then you feel like, why, why would I put myself through that again? Why would I go talk to another doctor if that's what my experience is going to be? Totally. You know? Do you think, um, and I, I don't know, maybe you've come across this with your clients over time, but I think we touched on it before uh, briefly as well. It's like, um, 
treatment for like a, another disorder, say, you know, di- health anxiety or social anxiety or, or OCD or whatever it is. Um, and there's connections with the bodily focus, repetitive behavior. Cause I know with myself, my anxiety is very closely connected to it. That would be, it would be, you know, for many years, my comfort blanket, my kind of safety zone or my way to balance out how I'm feeling, I guess, level out um, when the anxiety is, is at its peak kind of thing. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it isn't uncommon for anxiety disorders and depressive disorders um, and including OCD to, to coexist with a BFRB. And um, what you just said about, you know, that you would comfort yourself, you would sort of comfort yourself um, through the anxiety with skin picking um, underscores the fact that body focused repetitive behaviors are in part an emotional regulator. That's Mm. part of If you are wired, again, you're genetically predisposed for a BFRB, that means you you have the genetics for it. Whether those genetics get kicked off or not, you know, uh, in someone's lifetime depends, depends on circumstances. We don't know all of it now, but but we do know that there is a genetic component for BFRBs. Um, So somebody, somebody in, you know, just like any other condition, high blood pressure or whatever you want to talk about. You know, it's like we're all a function of our genetic makeup. And so you cannot be, you cannot have a BFRB unless you're genetically predisposed. So someone in your family tree has also had a BFRB, even they may not have known it. It might not have ever been diagnosed. So what happens is you have to be pre, you have to have the genetic uh, makeup that the body focused repetitive behavior pulling your pulling your hair, picking your skin has a physiological reward that is comforting, that regulates your emotions. If you were not genetically predisposed for that to feel good to you or for that to feel comforting to you, you wouldn't do it. Right. So people who feel anxious and have skin picking disorder, skin picking disorder is actually something that such as yourself, you know, they use to comfort themselves because it, it actually has a physiological, it, it calms the body down because Mm -hmm. you are wired for it to do that. And so that's why it's so often co-occurs with anxiety and OCD is not that, not necessarily that they're always linked, but those, we don't know yet. We don't have enough research to know are those genes always linked? Um, there is some initial research that shows that they possibly are, but again, use you know ha, be a, the doing whatever you do as your BFRB is a way that you are wired to comfort yourself, to soothe yourself through mm-hmm. uncomfortable emotions, events, feelings thoughts, memories, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. When you say that, um, because I've, I've mentioned, um, in another episode, I think about how, um, I think from where mine went from a habit to a disorder, 
when I think back. Um, and I used to be like a, a chronic nail biter. So there was always that kind of coping mechanism that need to physically do something. There was all that behavior. But I remember it switching when I was, um, it was like puberty. And obviously you've got like the change in your skin, your like the hormones. So all of a sudden there was like a lot more reasons to focus on my skin. Um, but I caught my dad skin picking um, and whatever whatever triggered in my mind I remember just thinking well if if he like you know my parents telling me to leave your skin alone don't touch it da, 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 but he's doing it so it must be all right like if, for me to do it um and then I think because of like of like stress during that time and um and, you know contributing factors during that period in my life that kind of made me then rely on it um it's interesting when you say like like genetics because I do think that my dad has used that as a mechanism somewhat. And and speaking to my younger sister, she says that she believes that she has the same. She hasn't been diagnosed for it, but um, it's really interesting to hear that because it sounds like I'm not the only one in my family that's using skin picking as a form of self-soothing. You absolutely cannot be because you have to be genetically predisposed. So it's interesting. Often when I mention it to somebody and I ask, does anybody else in your family, you know, do skin picking, hair pulling, nail biting, uh, some other kinds of um, non-BFRB behaviors? And they'll be like, mm, I don't think so. And then we'll get into treatment and they'll be like, oh, wait a minute. I just remember, you know, my dad, my mom, my aunt, my grandmother, you know, so Absolutely. You know, and it, it's not their fault. It's just, we all get genetic cards dealt to us and this is what you've got in your family. So, and, and I also like people to know that because I think it takes away some of the belief that it's somehow your fault. It's not, it's how you're wired genetically. Yeah. Now what you do with it from there is your choice, but it's not your fault that this is what you're dealing with any more than somebody who has a family history of heart disease or anything else. Hmm. That, I, like hearing that, I know that it, in my own mind, it reduces that shame and, and guilt. That's like, you know, especially after skin picking session, you feel so bad because you're like, I've just done this to myself. Like, you know, an hour or two ago, my skin was clear. Now it looks like this. Like, what have I done? It's very like self-critical. Um, but then when you say, you know, it's not actually your fault, you're like, right. You know, and as you say, if you see it as, I don't know, being diagnosed with high blood pressure, you're not going to be so hard on yourself in that sense. So, so shifting your mentality to that immediately will reduce a lot of pressure and hopefully can change your mindset and, and how you work with it rather than against it over time. Exactly. I hope so. Yes. Can you talk a little bit more about like the guilt and shame, like how that plays a part with bodily focus, repetitive behaviors? Um, Cause I'm sure there's a lot of people that really struggle with that aspect. Absolutely. I think it, it goes with the BFRB. Um, it, it, it is a byproduct of someone who's, uh, dealing with a BFRB. Um, and I think the guilt means that you're telling yourself, I shouldn't, I should or shouldn't be doing something. That's what guilt is. And so guilt is, oh, I shouldn't do this. I should be able to stop. Um, I, sh you know, whatever, whatever, whatever the shoulds are. 
Um, and the shame comes about as a result of whether it's, you know, family, society, the stigma, one's own feelings of why do I do this to myself? Um, if, if they don't know what a BFRB is or that it's you're genetically predisposed for it or that it's a disorder, then I think the shame is, and, and the fact that, that even in, in you know, my profession, um, psychotherapy, a lot of people don't know what BFRBs are. So then you go out to the general world and, and, and you think, still, a lot of people don't know what BFRBs are. So if they see that you've picked your skin or that you have a bald spot or that, you know, your nails are bloody or, or whatever it is, there's so much, there can be a lot of judgment. Um, and that shame again, comes from this feeling that I'm, I'm inherently bad. I'm, there's something wrong with me. Mm. There's not some, you know, that's different from other people. And so I have to, I feel shame around that. And that's why support groups, people like you who are doing what you're doing around. It's like when you find that out that you're not alone, that it's not just you, that there's a whole, you know, one in 20, that's 5%. So, you know, 5% of the world's population has a BFRB. It's just so well hidden. Most people, a lot of people hide it because they think, again, they think that they're the only ones and that there is something wrong with them. And that's what leads to the feelings of guilt and shame. And so, you know, I wanted to sort of circle back around to when you were talking about, we were talking about medical professionals. I would be remiss if I didn't say also that, you know, uh, just at full disclosure, I am on the board of directors of the TLC Foundation for BFRBs. I've been a longtime professional member. And part of our mission is not only to educate um, treatment providers, but to also educate the general public and to bring these conditions more into the light and to reduce the stigma around them. So, you know, that's definitely part of it as well. Mm. It's great what you do with the TLC Foundation. Like, I I didn't know that. Um, I know that you, you work to raise awareness, you know, for the general like public for them to get the information that they need and and um and do their own learnings whether it's online or offline but it's also amazing that you're helping um other professionals understand more with up-to-date information because i i assume over time you know with more um research into it that there's there's updates like annual updates, I don't know, but forever learning new things about this. Absolutely. There's a lot of research, you know, I mean, not a lot, but there's way more research than there used to be, you know, going into BFRBs and more and more people getting interested. Um, And so the TLC uh, does have a scientific advisory board and a lot of people that are doing research that the money was came through the TLC. But we, we also do have well, we're, we are in the process of, of, re, of refining it, but the TLC has long had a professional training institute to train psychotherapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, et cetera, on what is a BFRB and how do you treat it? And so that is part of the outreach as well, not just the community, but, but training professionals to then go be able to help others as well. That's so wonderful. Um, 
yeah, that makes me feel again so happy to know that this has <laughs> taken place. Um, yeah, because like this is it, it's no wonder um, it's no wonder that like younger generations are a lot more open to talk about these things. I yeah. feel like I'm I'm kind of noticing there's less and less shame um, with newer generations around subjects like this because they're just more open to be like, yeah, this is what I have. And they're just more, more of an open book. And I think like, you know, with more professionals that are training in this and more resources online and like, I feel like people are, it's not so much like having to hide it and manipulating what they're doing so that people can't see it and they mustn't tell anyone they can't tell their you know close loved ones friends and families and it's like just lifting lifting that pressure and having those discussions and understanding what you're doing is like I think half the battle um Absolutely. once you just once you feel like okay that's all right let's just let's just see what's out there for me let's just try and we can get this ball rolling then I don't know, in my experience, it's been such a rewarding uh, journey of like self-love and understanding it, rather than that that pressure of like shame and guilt and self-hatred and of what I've been doing. What would you say to um, someone who is listening right now who's just kind of found out that they've got a bodily focused repetitive behavior? I would say get as much accurate information as you can. And, um, you know, people like you who are putting out, you know, interviewing people, putting out accurate information, getting different points of view, but in different stories, um, the TLC Foundation for BFRBs certainly is a great resource. And and tapping into credible um, sources of information, staying away from um, people who say they can cure you in a day or a week or whatever. Like we talked earlier about this. It's just not, you know, for a very tiny percentage, all things are possible, right? So a very tiny percentage of people, maybe that's true, but in general, that isn't true. And it's just going to be another, you know, waste of time and, and, um, perhaps even money. So I think learning as much as possible and, and I agree with you. I think I've seen that as well, that the younger generations are more open and the stigma is being reduced. The atmosphere is whatever it is. Let's talk about it. Don't have to hide it. You know, don't have to be in shame. So getting that courage to actually connect with, uh, you know, even if it's an online uh, support group or, you know, um, Angela Hartland, for instance, you know, she's got a big online uh, presence you know, so just even connecting with uh, anonymously with a, you know, a support group or even a chat, but again, a credible source, you know, get, get information and know that there is a community, know that you are so not alone, even if you feel like you're alone. And if you think you don't know somebody, you don't know anybody else with a BFRB, you do, you just don't know that you know, because one in 20 people has a BFRB. And again, we've been, especially in the older generation, so conditioned to hide it. And, um, and that's okay. Like I have no problem with, you know, makeup or wigs or whatever people feel comfortable with. I'm not saying you have to just put it all out there, but I think connecting and realizing, you know, whether it's somebody in your family or a good friend 
oftentimes I've had people in younger generations, you know, who come to me as clients and they start talking to their friends and come back to me and say, oh, my, you know, two friends from high school, they, they do this, you know, they have a BFRB too, you know, and it's like, so that courage, you know, to be vulnerable and to talk about it in a safe space, then gives you a little more comfort to talk about it to others. And then you start finding out all these people around you actually also have a BFRB. You just didn't know it. And they didn't know that you did. <laughs> I, I can so definitely information and community. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. I was going to say like I, what you said, at least in my experience has been completely bang on. Like um, when, I mean, I started talking about my experiences because I felt so alone and I thought, look, if I start a conversation, then like, maybe I can get to a point where I don't feel alone. Maybe the right kind of people who have shared experiences and understand the same thing might kind of find me somehow online and we can connect kind of thing. Um, and by having conversations like that, I've then been able to take, you know, having those same conversations offline. And I've realized that friends, uh, work colleagues, people I've known for years and now family members, like I've all got the same thing. And it's just, as you say, having that, courage to start that conversation and you'll realize that not only is that really beneficial and healing for you but it's also can be really beneficial and healing for them because they may be a few steps back in their journey not realizing what they do and feeling like they're the only ones when in fact you're not and um also what you said before about you know the genetic side of it if you're open with what you're doing and you've you've um read up on the right like knowledge you've went to the right resources and you know you're clued up with what you're doing then your outlook on it is going to be so much more open and you never know someone in your family like a, a younger person or even an older person may look to you and that helps their healing journey exactly exactly and I think that it's so re- you know it's so rewarding not only to heal ourselves but to help heal others mm, absolutely um, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, what I was what what I like to ask uh, before we close the conversation, um, because it, I think it's really nice to kind of hear if there is a favorite quote of yours and why it's your favorite. Um, just yeah, if, if that's such a great question. <laughs> I love it. I do. And I have it. I have a. Uh, I think I ripped this out of Oprah Magazine, but it, it is my favorite quote. Um, and it is: "My wish for you is that you feel no need to constrict yourself to make other people comfortable." Oh, wow. And that's. I, I'm going to mess up this name. Ta Nehisi Coates. Um, he's an author. So my wish for you is that you feel no need to constrict yourself to make other people comfortable. To me, that's complete freedom. Um, no shame, no guilt, just authenticity. This is me. I love me. And if, if, if we are meant to be friends or f- lovers or family or community, then you'll love me too. And I'm not going to hide who I am. So it's, it's the lack of shame and, um, the lack of self-judgment and self-censoring. And in my own experience in life, um, that has equaled, you know, just an awesome sense of freedom. So I love that quote. 
It's my favorite. Thank you so much. I've never heard that, but I'm definitely going to have that one written down and, and kept close maybe about my desk so I can look on it because that's um, that really is such a lovely, lovely quote. Thank you for sharing. And thank you so much for your time. I've, I've had a blast talking with you. Um, I feel so warm and fuzzy. I think I've said that like numerous times now. Um, but if, if anybody wanted to reach out to you, um, or, you know, find out more about the services um, that you can do, um, where would be the best places to find you, Karen? Um, you can find me at my website. It's karenpickett.com. So it's just my name.com. And from there, there's a contact form. You know, you can email me. And um, I'm also on Instagram, karen.l.pickett. Uh, I'm sorry, I have a couple of different accounts. Um, Karen Pickett, <laughs> LMFT. But, you know, it's pretty easy to find me if you just go to my website. Uh, there's there's links to all that. And um, I want to say before we close to Kim, it's been a real pleasure being here with you. You're an amazing, warm, fuzzy, wonderful, beautiful person. And it's been such a pleasure to connect with you in this way. So thank you for having me. It's I've really, really enjoyed this time with you. Thank you so much. And the pleasure is all mine. Absolute likewise. It's been just, I, I've absolutely loved it. And I really hope that we can connect again. I know that we've got another conversation in the works in the new year, which I'm really excited about. Um, and I will be adding in the description uh, of this episode, you, your website and Instagram, if anybody does want to reach out to you. So just check that out. Um, thank you so much for your time and we'll speak very soon. Thank you so much, Karen. You're welcome, Kim. Take care. Take care. Bye.